Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who goes to bakeries to meet cute with girls who don't work at bakeries. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and that's the trick. See, you don't want to flirt with a woman on the clock because it's 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 unfair to her, right? She can't escape, right? right. Uh, so it's it's a jerk move to do that and a creep move to do that. But if you just hang out in the bakery. Hoping to stare at women on the street. Uh, That's totally fine and normal and not problematic in any way. Uh, I'm just saying, ethically. I have definitely seen a a rom-com that featured a bakery-based meet-cute. Oh, I mean... I I, know I've seen that movie. Wait a minute. It's it's stranger than fiction, isn't it? It very well may be. It Uh, is. It is. And it's meant to be a joke about (laughs) rom-coms. Yeah. It is, yeah. absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I, no, I, think, I took the I meta around, rom-com and put it into my head as a rom-com. Now, now, because of that, it probably exists in a rom-com, and we're just... I probably. mean, the coffee shop meet cute is definitely a thing that Well, yeah, that I mean, I, I, that's where I saw it, because I don't see a lot of rom-coms, okay? Um, um, yeah. As it turns out, much like comedy, especially bad comedy... Rom-coms don't translate as well as one would imagine. Into into Japanese? Yeah, what happens is, is that, like, social structures being different the way they are, the, the things that, like, telegraph information to a Western audience don't necessarily telegraph information to a Japanese audience that well about what's going to happen. There are certain famous ones here. Like, your love actuallys are well-known yeah. here. But, like, and they, they get released here. They must do f- decently well, but the ones that are blockbusters are always Japanese-based ones or Korean-based ones, where where there's enough cultural knowledge that they're like, yes, like you know, like when a person, you know, when you're watching a TV show and the audience, the fake audience goes, ooh, right. To do that, you have to understand cultural context pretty specifically to know that the that the the the, the, the media is telling you that something's happening, right? If you don't have that cultural context, you can't have that reaction. And it turns out without that reaction, rom-coms are pretty boring. Also, yeah. they yeah. still have the word comedy in them, but they're not even good comedy. So <laughs> comedy definitely doesn't translate well. I mean, it does occasionally. There are there are comedians that transcend borders because they're just so good at what they do that, like, they've touched into primal human condition rather than, like, airline food jokes and stuff uh but rom-coms are generally not that yeah so uh yeah i don't watch a lot of rom-coms is what i'm saying <laughs> at least not in english and then the, the japanese ones work in the same direction in the same way for me like when i've watched them like there are good ones that i've seen that were really really good and then a lot of them are like well, i don't know why why do i care what's happening here like why I think- is that significant i don't know I think ultimately we just need to split the geographical distance difference and uh, all watch Bollywood films. Well, I mean, I feel like Bollywood actually has achieved a certain level of transcendence. Yeah. In the sense that, like, whatever they've created there, like, somehow exists outside of some, almost as it's at a higher plane of existence. Yes. (laughs) It's weird. It's pretty amazing, actually. They've, uh... 
they've achieved Nirvana in a lot of ways. It's it, it's it's pretty actually it's pretty star because like I the number of Bollywood films I've just watched is like wow this is on and like you it sort of sucks you and you're like I'm watching this thing aren't I? Yeah. Like, yes, I am. <laughs> Pat, I want to take a minute to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Me too. If you I want to. I also want to do that. I'm glad that you also, I'm glad you're fully on board with this, Pat. I, let's buckle in and, and, and. I was hesitant for the first year and a half, but now you were, you were. I'm coming around. I'm glad. I'm glad. Just in time for Patreon to completely implode. <laughs> to completely fuck everybody over? Yeah. You've, yeah, you've jumped on board. Uh Oh, patreon.com slash lost in criterion if you want to support us and keep us moving uh on our path through this. <laughs> I don't this know where this is going. <laughs> keep us moving on our mission to go to the place that we are trying to get to in a very existential and proverbial sense that is not real motion. <coughs> to keep us lost in criterion. Yeah, no joke, right? Like yeah. To buy us flags and things to eat while we wander the barren wastelands that are very much like the Antarctic. Yes. Exactly. It's actually the Almost. Antarctic. I'm sorry. Almost I exactly. Mistake. For just $1 a month, if you want to support us, you get access to a bonus episode. It's a non-criterion movie. Um, and as such, we have fun over there. We uh, <laughs> we do a pretty wide selection of things. Uh our March 2019 film it was uh, God's Country, a documentary by Louis Maul, which is actually an Eclipse release, but we're only watching the Criterion film, so we thought it counted. Um, no, it definitely all... counts. Yeah. We found a loophole. <laughs> there we go. Um, we've, uh, we've watched uh, other films that I would consider uh, pretty much classics that maybe should get the Criterion treatment, but haven't. Your creatures twos. Your Ernest goes to camps. <laughs> You're, I'm going to do it every time, Adam. Yeah, I can't yeah. help myself. I'm now, when I talk about those, uh, Pat brings up some of the worst films we've watched, but I mean things like Dog Day Afternoon or The Americanization of Emily, yeah. which have also yeah. won, won votes over there. And they are votes. I put together a list, and you guys vote on what movie we're going to watch. Now, Kazam, the 1996 Shaquille O'Neal starring children's genie movie, is always a choice, and uh, at least once they voted for it. There have been times where it came pretty close, and Kazam ended up losing in a tie-breaking dice roll that I used to uh, to do those things. Uh, but uh, but Kazam has legitimately won once, and we watched it, right. and it was terrible. So if you'd like See, to make now, us watch Kazam again, I think we need please. I think we need it to be voted for again because we need to view it in life in light of his recent appointment to the Papa John Board of Directors. <laughs> It gives us a really new and That's interesting true. context with which to analyze that movie. Yes, yes, junk food to the sky, um. which just doesn't make sense. Like that, like I'm, I am a big fan of the concept of genies getting you, giving you what you ask for rather than yes. what you want. I think yes. that is one of the most, to me, to this day, the monkey's paw scenario is still one of the most interesting things in fiction that could ever exist. Okay. Okay. The reason why is because they the the author always gives you a split second in your mind because you know it's going to happen 
to try to figure out what fucked up how shit's going to happen. And, so as it turns I find out, that endlessly enjoyable. As I find, it turns out, the worst they part did that, which is horrible. The worst part of Kazam is that he's just a bad genie because he kind of because he doesn't genie, trick frankly. anyone. No, yeah, absolutely. I'm really disappointed. Like Shaq as trickster demon is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and also just the fact that like to the sky. No, that like that's not even a like interesting play on words that would lead to what happens. Right. Like the f- junk food's not going to the sky. It's raining junk food. Yes. In fact, it is coming from the sky, not going to the sky. Right, exactly. So. It's all fucked up. He's bad at his job. He's just bad at his job. Uh but yeah, one dollar a month you can hear uh cutting commentary like that about uh <laughs> yep. About that's non-criterion a, films that you get to vote on. Now, for a little extra for $5 a month, uh, you not only, of course, get the voting rights and access to those. Uh, <laughs> just commentary, yeah. Access to those episodes, but I, it just suddenly occurred to me that it's a poll tax that we're charging people. Yes, yes, it is. It is. It is. We're, we're bad people. You, uh, you uh, pay a dollar, you get to vote. Uh, in my perfect Marxist utopia, we would be paid for the art that we make anyway. That's true. So we would need to have a poll tax. That's true. That's true. <laughs> anyway, um, for $5 a month, you get access to that stuff, and we also thank you on air. And in that regard, uh, thank you to our current $5 supporters, uh, Adam Speakerman and Kevin Little. Um, yes, thank you. A little above that, we do something that I think is pretty special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the films we've watched recently, usually on the main podcast, but occasionally one from one of the bonus episodes. Uh, then I have that printed up on a postcard, and I write a little personal thank you note and mail those out to you. You get a little physical reminder of your support, and you get a piece of art from Pat, and it's uh, and a little note from me, which I think is kind of special too, right? Um, yeah. And I write them in a fountain pen in cursive. You could probably never read them. It's yeah. wonderful. No, I have copies of it. You can't. Um. <laughs> uh, but those uh, those $10 supporters we also thank on air. So thank you, Jason Westhaver, Eric Coronado, and Michael McGrath for yeah, your $10 you and above supports. Uh, yeah, we're all very grateful for that support. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion if you want to get in on that support. We definitely appreciate it. We'll keep doing this whether or not you do, but uh, but it definitely helps. To... Speak for yourself, Adam. Pat Pat may be, may have to quit if uh, if we gonna, go back to you're gonna swap to, me out with somebody else. I guess, I guess I'll we'll replace you mid episode sometime. Like it'll, it'll work out. We're all middle class white Midwesterners. I can put you on, and no one will even notice the voice. No, change. that's absolutely true. Like, I mean, there's there are millions of people who sound exactly like me. <laughs> right. So a weird phenomenon is that's also true of, uh, of a certain type of Canadian, which I keep encountering. I watch a lot of TV. Yeah, uh, and there's a. I have a friend from uh, like a little bit east of um, of BC, and like every time there's an entire group of Canadians that appear on cooking shows, yeah, almost one per season that sound exactly like him, and it scares the shit out of me every time. Can I? Can I? Can I tell you a thing? Uh, in the moment, I can. I I mixed up east and west. And I, when you described him as a little east of BC, I mean, that thought, was like the ocean. Does he, does he live in the Pacific? What? Is <laughs> uh, I guess technically there's islands. 
<laughs> but they're also no, the people from those islands sound totally. That is also a very recognizable accent, but it is a wild one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this week we are starting a box set. We are getting into Six Moral Tales by Ari Romer, uh, Eric Romer, if you're reading it in English. Um, I assume Ari is correct, but uh, but we're just going to call him Romer anyway. So just I don't know. It doesn't really matter because pronounce the R, don't pronounce the R. It's all French. It doesn't. Right. Like, I mean, like, we, 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 we probably need to come up with a, with a uh, transliteration policy for the, for the podcast, frankly. We really, what we really need is a style guide is what. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. We need to know, what, do we transliterate? Is it per language or is it, like, per type of part of speech? I don't know. I don't know. Um, we should probably pronounce names in the way that the person would pronounce their own name. Because oh yeah, but but that's hard to know sometimes. Frankly, it is hard to like, know sometimes. It's pretty rare that I mean. Now, to be fair, what we need to do is just actually learn how to write, read the sort of the IPA uh, pronunciation. <laughs> that's guides, never going to happen. Which is a thing I should have learned in university, but I didn't. <laughs> it's a thing both of I us should know it. from undergrad. Yeah, it's... we should. And then, and then my graduate school for sure. <laughs> right. And I just decided, like, no, nope, fuck it. Like, I had a I had a coworker who was on like was like. Uh, I didn't like this coworker very much. <laughs> um, let's be clear here. This is this is not a nice story, but uh, she was like, I was like, she's like, well, this is how you pronounce it, and I was like, I don't know what that says. And she's like, you can't read that, and I'm like, no, I'm not a monster. <laughs> Why would I be able to read that? Like, I speak this language already. Like, if I'm not gonna suddenly up and change how I pronounce a word at this point, it's too late. That shit's whatever it is at this point. That's fair. That's fair. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. Anyway, Six Moral Tales by Ari Romer. Um, we'll, uh, we'll obviously be watching all six movies. Uh, each one is its own spy number. So while, while some of them... For us. While some of them are shorts, and in fact our first one, The Bakery Girl Monceau, that we're talking about this week, is only 23 minutes long, and some of them are full lengths. I believe the longest uh, is 111 minutes. Uh, we'll be talking about each film separately. And, See, uh, this is the way they should always do box sets and criteria, because yeah. this is perfect. And we will us. be, with some variation, talking about everything on the Criterion disc. Uh for each episode too. Um, I make that promise with the first one, having no idea what's on the other discs. So yeah, right. that may fall you get apart. You the other way. ones and it's just weird racist screeds <laughs> or something like that. It's like, I guess we're not going to talk about well, that. I hope not, but who knows? Well, um, I mean, just let's, I'm just saying, let's not make promises we can't keep. Okay. Right. Right. You're right. Uh, you're writing checks. Your body can't cash Adam. Okay? At least, at least for this week, we'll be talking about the bakery yeah. girl of Monsau, And we will talk briefly about, uh, also on this DVD, uh, oh goodness, I just lost. It was the name like of the Charlotte other film. Steak, Charlotta Steak. <laughs> uh, partition because cause Romer has a really, really no. interesting naming convention. Uh, presentation or Charlotte and her steak. Oh, and her um, steak. Sorry. Yes. Yes. So it's a. Uh, There's another short that's and also her dog here. sort of scenario. Yes. Um, there's also an interview on the first DVD between uh, Barbette Schroeder, who stars here in The Baker Girl Monsoon as our male lead, uh, and Romare, um, talking about the entire 
six-film series. Uh, so we will be drawing information from that a little bit as we talk now uh, and, and drawing pertinent information as we talk about the rest of the series, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, I, I we, we've talked a little bit as, about how to integrate this in. And, as a piece yeah. of film itself, it is a boring interview between two Frenchmen. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Well, especially since we, we currently do not have enough. Right. Having not watched the rest of the film series context. yet. We don't have the context to to consume that, which I suppose is one reason. It, see, it's it's very odd with with supplements. Sometimes you don't want to watch the supplement first because it might spoil the actual film, right? Um, but sometimes you uh, you do want to watch it first for the context of the film, right? Uh, right. With this one, it definitely would not make sense uh, to know anything. Uh, without having watched the rest of the films, and unfortunately, both of us have already. At least attempted yeah, we, to watch we, we both it. You watched, watched it. it. Like, I, you watched I it. Did. I attempted to watch well, let's it. Let's be clear here. Twitter was open. Because <laughs> okay. I got about 20 minutes of that bad boy, and I was like, okay, I can look up every, every, every two piece minutes. Of it. Yeah. Basically, anytime they talk, and I can get some context, and then I can look up, read the next line. And I did that for an hour and a half. Because, yeah. like, people talk slow. You may be aware of this. Yeah. But, like, I can read a subtitle way faster than uh, Romero can say it. Yes. Uh, so. Um, so with this one and with, with this being the shortest of all, we'll take this opportunity, I think, to, to give some background material on the entire series. Uh, yes. So we won't sort of won't have to rehash this every time. Um, hopefully you're not listening to these completely out of order. Uh, I feel like if you've seen one of the six moral tales, you probably... Uh, gone through and watched the rest, so so hopefully. But also considering the fact that the, they're already out of order anyway, they are a bit, yeah. Like it's whatever, yeah. Um, well, that's really a, what Pat alludes to is is one of them is uh, is officially uh, and Criterion lists it as an earlier spine. Uh, uh, My Night at Mods uh, came out was planned and put into production prior to uh <laughs> goodness i just lost the the name i don't of that know one. I, I don't remember i the collection i've already forgotten yeah uh la collection uh but the collection ended up coming out in 1967 whereas might not have mods did not come out until 1969 because of funding issues um so yeah uh these all got started. Romare was a uh, literate, uh, literature professor uh, and writer um, who then ended up as the editor of uh, Cahier du Cinema uh, as his day job. Um, and as such was the rest of the French New Wave's boss <laughs> because everybody worked for that magazine, right? Uh, right. Goddard Truffaut. Uh, so he wrote, he'd written a novel prior um, and written sort of a series of short uh, vignettes called Elizabeth, um, which he says in the interview he would go back and call Elizabeth's House if he could retitle it because it's about people living there, not, not just about Elizabeth. Um, so he wrote Moral Tales as a book, and I'm not entirely sure if if the book only contains these six tales. 
and I'm not sure how much changed from page to screen. Um, right. He describes his writing as uh, as cinematic uh, in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, these films all sort of anticipate uh, the new wave, though, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on at this time that's sort of anticipating the new wave, right? Right. Um, uh, when did 400 Blows actually come out? Uh, 59, right? These are these were right. both made after the 400 Blows. So. Right, well, and he talks about, yeah. in the interview a little bit, about sort of his relationship with 400 Blows and some of that stuff as well. So, yeah, so. yeah. Um, so, uh, so he'd written the book... And he was trying to get funding, uh, and he wrote the screenplays based on the book, and uh, no one wanted to give him money for it. Uh, the book yep. is in what's called a nouveau roman style. Um, that was a literary movement, uh, which also he pr- sort of predates the codification of that literary movement um, and anticipates it in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's... Uh, it's kind of a new romantics sort of thing, but the new romantics was a much different thing. Um, but ideologically, you know, it's a, a the romantic authors. Uh, it is a re uh, reemergence of sort of some of those ideas. Um, right. And but also, it's much like the, what the French New Wave did for film. Uh, this did for literature. It goes hand in hand in that. So it's a rejection of some some amount of formulated structure, uh, some amount of cliches, uh, but also uh, sort of rejection of first-person narration in a lot of ways, too. Uh, right. Though, obviously, um, this film in particular contains first-person narration and voiceover. Um, well, yeah, a, very, a significant yeah. amount of it. Yeah, but that's not, that's not something that was necessarily... We've seen a lot of other French New Wave films, and that was kind of rejected too, right? You know, that's not something that comes up. Um, So it might be best to think about Nouveau Roman as a literary equivalent to the French New Wave in film. Um, It's doing different things, and that might make that describing like that might suggest things about Nouveau Roman that aren't true. And but uh, but without giving you a a deep dive literary <laughs> criticism yeah, lesson, which we don't need, which we don't need, um, that'll that'll suffice as a shorthand definition. Uh, critics though called the book old fashioned, um, which yeah. which I guess meant he was throwing back a little too much to the romantics. Um, the plot here though. Well, is, yeah, and he also mentioned, uh, what is it, uh, German Expressionism, which yeah, is also yeah. in the, a similar vein, and, like, they didn't like that either right, for the movies, right. and, like, you know. Right. Uh, the plot here is definitely a, a romantics throwback, uh, in that it is about a a, a bougie guy uh, tricking <laughs> tricking a poor girl to fall in love with him. <laughs> well, it's not even, it's it's. The sad part is it's even less sophisticated than that. Right. Like, the mo- the movie is a really... The movie is both depressing and also interesting in the sense that our, our point of view character is an asshole. Yes. 
who ends up getting what he wants, which is also a bold choice in 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 film, right? To <laughs> yes. to, to make your bougie asshole actually win. It, it, like he actually does destroy the rec center, um, <laughs> like, but like beyond that, our the actual our point of view. He's our point of view character, but our focus is a person whose name we don't even ever find out. Right. But that's who we're supposed to send. Who's the title with. character who doesn't even get a name in the title? Never gets a name. She never gets a name. Right. But also, it's really interesting because like it's interesting, but it's also kind of depressing in the sense that like. She's the main focus, but we don't know anything about her. Well, we know where she works. Well, yeah, that's a significant point in a person's life. Uh, like, it's, This is it's a capitalistic society, Pat. That's the defining thing about someone's life. Right, that's all that matters. <laughs> no, we just we, we have this person who's our focus, but like all every interpretation is through this not just unreliable narrator, like in the sense that like he doesn't know shit about her. Does ever yeah. try to find out, right? But also, like, he's also just an asshole, right? Right. What's the so what's, it's really an odd situation to be in. What's his line on here? Uh, what upset oh, me was not something. that she liked me, but that she <laughs> she'd think there was any way I'd like her. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's a he's he's definitely one hundred percent codified as an asshole. Right. Uh, like, and I'm and I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay with uh that as a thing to do right to be like i'm gonna tell you just how much of a jerk wad this guy yeah. is but then to have him um, win right <laughs> but then he wins but then i guess like that i'm okay in the end i'm okay with it because it's it's it is weirdly not it's not new wave but it's kind of weirdly feels prescient in the sense that like yeah like real life assholes win like, here you go. You know what I mean? I don't think I don't think of it as as a, as a real story. Yeah, because it's not it's not right. Like it's not meant to be per se. But like that that element makes it feel very real, and I think it's handled in a way that like we listen to this guy's inner monologue of being an asshole, and then his assholery wins. Feels very legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think it it might feel a little better if we knew that uh that the woman he falls to was also bad that Sylvia was was perhaps also a well, bad person. We kind but... of we kind of we're not given a lot of information about that. And I actually credit uh Romero for not right doing that in the sense that like it that's an easy out. It is an easy out. It's an easy out of like because like you know what I mean? Like, I don't like the idea, like, well, it's okay because he, he picked the wrong one or something like what, that. Do you, no, think, like, do you think we, there we, might be hints of that? She talks about watching bit. him. She's kind of an asshole at dinner. She talks about watching him. Uh, she never yeah, alludes to whether of, or not yeah. she she knew what was going on in the bakery. No, she did. Yeah. I think I think that's the subtext of that dinner completely. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, I don't like dudes who do this and this and this. but like, And she says something to the effect of, like, I knew I saw everything that was happening, and I feel like there's a code of yeah. like there's a coded like including you flirting with this girl as well, and and like I said, I, I I'm I'm fascinated because as I was watching, I was like I don't really like how this is headed, and I don't I don't, 
but at the same time, like, I don't have a problem with it because I don't feel like at any point Romer's trying to tell us that anything that here is happening is good. And we've talked about that before on this podcast where we've been at, we've been torn on whether or not to give credit to the director or not because they were in somewhere somewhere fence sitting on the idea of whether or not what they were showing was good or bad. I was yeah. getting the movie, but uh, we we um, he eventually had Le, Le, was it uh, Lam Fonts like uh, who was it? what's the director's name who wrote that who Molly. directed that yeah Molly, Molly. yeah yeah see I, I have trouble with him. Um, <laughs> Molly's that first film we watched by Molly yeah we had some debate about that because like heart murmur kid's obviously an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> he's a bad person. Yeah, and 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 it's and it's very unclear in that movie whether or not we're supposed to think he is not an asshole. Right. The the, the, the but like in here the director just there's no there's no yeah there's no doubt. Well, with Male it was also further convoluted because the character was meant to be Male in his childhood. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, or at least a fictionalized version. And I was worried that was the case when we first, when I first started this movie. I was like, oh no, one of this, yeah. one of these again. And then <laughs> it just didn't go in that direction. I was really pretty pleased that it didn't head that way. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. happy, obviously, about what happens, uh, but at the same time, it's, it's yeah, feels very real to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true, and that's that's what this is now. Part of what makes it feel real is the the new wave conventions that it has these are largely non-actors in fact only one person the woman who played sylvia uh had really been in a film before and she'd been in a bunel film actually um but uh but these are shot on location they got (laughs) the work day at cahier de cinema uh ended at six and they immediately started filming across (laughs) the street at a bakery Right. right um uh Schroeder is is our lead, uh, though though he is overdubbed uh, by uh, Bertrand Travienne, um, which I'm also probably saying. Yeah, which, by the way, Romer's description of why that happened is hilarious. <laughs> like, not just because he because of the apology, but because like his description of like, well, you know, my right, like it's kind of almost feels like a backhanded compliment, right, or something like that. It's like. Well, you're you're very naturalistic, whereas my writing was very, uh, yeah, literary. So, so in the yeah in the interview, uh, Schroeder brings it up as if they've never talked about it before. <laughs> the interview is from like at least the '90s, right? So it's it's uh, yeah, it's been twenty, it's been thirty years minimum. It's been been thirty to forty years, um, and uh, the. The DVD just describes it as a new interview, suggesting that uh, that is when when the DVDs came out, uh, when when Criterion first released them, uh, which I feel like was two thousand six, but I'm not entirely sure on that. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, but Schroeder asks about it, and he and uh, Romer says, "Well, it's you know I'm slightly embarrassed by that. Actually, uh, I hope you weren't offended." Um, uh, and, uh, and Schroeder then asks if, uh, if he was replaced because, uh, Trevinier sounded more, uh, aristocratic and, uh, and Romer says, no, no, that wasn't it. He sounded more literary 
Uh, right. And he does He does go on to say, he, he compliments Schroeder's dialogue delivery. He says, you were very good with the dialogue. Uh, it's, it's, uh, he had the voice I wanted, the literary voice I wanted for the, uh, the narration. And, uh, and you can't have them be different because then no right. one would know who was doing the narration. So, um, so that's why he had to do it. He had to do it. Um, he justifies the use of voiceover here actually, uh, as, uh, as very popular in American film at the time. Um, right. And then goes on, and and he makes a he makes a valid point actually in going on and talking about silent film, and how uh, interstitial titles in silent film uh, were essentially you know voiceover narration. They were also dialogue. Well, I mean, they're but they basically they're, both. he right. describes them as as novelistic. And yeah. he's right. I mean, like they are novels, right? Because you right. can put you can mix narration and like char- like interviews of characters inner thoughts all with like dialogue can all exist simultaneously in those interstitial cards. Right. Which you just can't do in, in like sound film. It's not possible. Right. Which is an interesting point. I, I just thought it was funny where like his, like the way he describes like, Oh, well you, I'm more literary. It just had this sort of like, this is a, this is kind of not very nice way to say this. Like, I don't think he's meant to be, he's trying to be mean, but it sort of comes off that way. It's like, right. Like, well, I, I was, I'm too literary for you right? <laughs> to, right. to read. You can't possibly voice me. Right. Uh. It's, it's, it just sounded weird. I like when I, when I watched, it, I was like, wow, woof shots fired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Um, so they apparently, uh, didn't, uh, didn't even pay the bakery to film there. The bakery just let them do it. Um, and, uh, all of the extras, they did actually, you know, they controlled the space. They didn't just have random people eating in the bakery. Um, cause they were other, they were other film people as the extras in the bakery scenes. Um, though presumably, Everyone on the street was just whoever was on the street when they shot. Probably, right? yeah, I, I think so. Probably, yeah. Um, you know, handheld camera just following them through. Uh, yeah. Um, so as a, you know, it's a short, but as a as a zero budget thing that people made after work, <laughs> it's uh, it's technically fine. Um, Romer himself was not too thrilled about it technically right um he thought this and the next film were both a little uh a little below the standards he'd want for uh for right. making films yeah and there's an interesting thing he talks about that a little bit in the in the interview and it's it's a little it's odd because he also seems to be that seems to be a kind of running theme of the critique of all of his work is that it lacks sort of artistic precision for like the actual cinematography just yeah. in general and I mean he maybe doesn't un- doesn't necessarily disagree with that but like uh, uh, yeah especially on this one but yeah it's just it's a thing they talk about it seems to be not his main focus in 
making films, right? Right. More right. storytelling than anything else. Right, but also something that he he constantly self critiques. Right. So it's exactly. not. It's just a, it's a weird yeah. relationship he has with it. But I don't know that he actively tries to get better with it. We're going to find out. Well, yeah, and I'm sure. I'm sure even if he doesn't actively try, he still gets better because well, that's right, how yeah. things work. Um, though, uh, though this is not. Uh, these are not his first films. Um, and in fact, presentation or Charlotte et un, et son sec, uh, presentation or Charlotte and her steak, um, <clears throat> was made two years before this, uh, and actually written uh, in 1951, uh, and not made until. No, I'm sorry. Let's let's be very clear here. Charlotte and her steak and her steak was written and shot in 1951. It was not released okay. until 1961, which is when both of the female characters were overdubbed. Um, yeah, Goddard stars in that one, but they use Goddard's voice um, as his own. I don't know if Gar- Goddard went back and overdubbed himself. Uh, right, but maybe probably yeah. yeah. Um, That's what happened. The other the other technical aspect of that was that it was originally shot on 16 millimeter, and it wasn't until 1961 that he had the money to blow it up to 35 millimeter and add sound. Um, right, and, and also he described, yeah, his 16 millimeter camera obviously didn't have sound recording. Right, which means Goddard, Goddard's thing, certainly yeah. not uh, recorded live, which means he probably does overdub himself 10 years later, um, more than likely. Yeah, I mean, that checks out. Yeah. Um, do you want to go ahead and talk about that a little bit? It's It plays with similar themes, though not in the rest of the six moral tales. Um and one, it, it might be a good time to mention that what Romare means as moral here is sort of a, uh, they are beholden to their own moral codes. It is not an allusion to any right. sort of and overarching he's even actually in the or universal. Even more vague yeah. about it than that, yeah. really. Right. He's like, like, they have an internal life, and that 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 informs the behaviors that they have right. is what essentially he means. Like, it's like their own personal moral code is even sort of a bit generous. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, I mean, like, um, he, I mean, he, I guess he at some point says that, but like, it's also doesn't feel like that's what he was actually getting at through most of the discussion of it. It's more like, they do what they want based on the way that they think about the universe, personally. Which is not exactly the same thing as having a, a moral code, you know? If that makes sense. Right. Like, I don't get the impression that the character that we're watching in this film has anything that would re- even remotely approach an actual moral code, right? Well... He operates based on his own internal, like concept of what he wants and what he needs right which is itself a a moral code so to speak right well yeah i mean yeah yeah like you know narcissism as as moral code right uh but like my what what i mean is that code is a very specific very intense word that has meanings yeah but really Um, what it means is consistency right right Um, and i but i i don't believe that this person is consistent 
Uh, well, our main character in our main character in Bakery Girl, we don't see enough of his life to know that he's exactly. consistent. Exactly, right. but I don't believe he would be. Yeah. Like I just based on what we see of him, I don't believe in in a in a, in a wide shot of his life that this, this character is a consistent person. Because what is internal to him and what he believes he wants and needs probably changes on a regular basis. Uh, had he never found Sylvie, like uh, Sylvia, like I guarantee you, he would have continued to pursue the relationship with the bakery girl, right? In up until a certain point, at which point he would do something really mean and bad. Like <laughs> well, you know he I mean? would, like he would do that mean thing whenever Sylvia came back, no matter what point this relationship reached, right? Well, right. and that, and so like my point is that I don't have a, it's interesting that the the word they're trying to define here is moral which I don't have a problem with in the in the in the context of it. I understand what he means there I just right. have a problem that later on the word code gets added on yeah which is even like less accurate to me right. uh Yeah, and, to, and even and even yeah, and even then he doesn't really ever say moral code, right? It's more just like the way we think about the yeah. things that he said, right? But like basically, like they operate based on a personal internal understanding of what they want and what they need. Like it's a very loose use of the word moral for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But like That's I understand what he's trying to say, and I I don't know what a better name for it would have been or anything like that. Yeah. And he talks about uh, alluding to like uh, 19th century uses of of moral in like French philosophy. That, uh, right. Yeah. So that it's a bit heavier than I want to apply to this discussion. Because like right. in the end, like and, and that's one of the interesting things about Romer that's kind of annoying the, the interview kind of revealed to me that I'm not super happy about is that like in the end what he wrote while interesting to watch a lot of allusions to a lot of like various literature from like the past seems a lot it seems very grandiose for what actually is <laughs> on film right right like I don't want to be mean like I enjoyed watching at it. least it was for this one it's right. uh, yeah and we'll see how it goes for yeah. going on but like like in the end, he didn't write a masterpiece here, right? And there's nothing wrong with it. And like I said, I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting. I like the way it. I like the way it handles the idea of the protagonist and like and you know not and there is no sort of higher moral authority that governs. He doesn't get his just desserts or anything like that, right? Uh, and I'm and that's all very interesting. But it's like that's not groundbreaking. <laughs> it's not the first time that that's happened, right? And yeah, he's got like all these sort of like like literature based like sort of like antecedents to this to this thing, and I'm like, yeah, okay, cool, but like, you still wrote a short movie about like a boy and a girl, and the boy's just an asshole to the girl. Like, yeah, you've described all of modern history, right? <laughs> Fair. At least <laughs> it's know, reality. And, um, yeah, and, and again, I'm not I'm not trying to write. He, he just is very high-minded about his art, obviously. Yeah. So, uh... <laughs> all of these movies, all six moral tales, follow a similar plot setup. 
Well, uh, as far as he described as it, far as, don't know. As far actually. as he and other people describe, and we'll see moving forward how true that is, where a man uh, is with or falls for woman one, and woman one is somehow disappears from the narrative, or and he meets well, woman two, and then goes back to woman one in the end. Well, so Romer specifically describes it, though, as like a man trying to decide between two women. Yeah. Which I don't love as a description, uh, and we'll see how accurate that is over the course of the film. Like, if that's how it actually always turns out, I probably will not enjoy the series. <laughs> yeah. Uh, th- this movie is not that, actually, even despite what Romer describes. Like, he's not trying to decide between two women. He actually knows which one. Yeah, he's already made his decision. With. He made his decision. And, it, and it's just him being an asshole to fill time. Yeah. Him being a jerk uh, to, to woman, too. Yeah, I mean, in that, but that's a different animal than what Romer describes yeah. in that interview, which makes it makes me curious to find out what the actual answer will be. Yeah, uh, how 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 much he's simplifying the plots. Yeah, uh, presentation is also a a man and two women, uh, but it is Goddard's character trying to uh, trying to get with with one of the women by uh, by complimenting the other one to make her jealous is essentially how the plot on that yeah, one. Yeah, that one's really, like, that movie's actually substantially weirder. Yeah. Because it, the, the, the one of the women is, well, number one, I had a really serious problem. I watched the opening credit of that, like, four times. Yeah. And I still can't separate which one's which. <laughs> like, I really couldn't process it. Like, I read it, and I'm like, what? It probably has a lot to do with the allergy medicine I took today. Yeah. But, like, I was, I don't know, like, who's who here? Like, who are we making jealous here? And then why won't you leave this woman alone and stop asking her to kiss you? Please stop. This is weird. <laughs> I do, I do love uh, the mild amount of agency that she shows uh, in that course. And I am told, I am told from what I've read that, uh, that the, the women in these movies exercise more ag- agency as we go along in the plots. Um, That's good, but I mean, uh, neither of them, neither of them is agency less. None of the women in, the, in either of the movie is without agency, right? Right. Like, uh, as far as I can tell, like even even though like the bakery girl is being absolutely tricked, she is still operating within her own agency. We see most of the time. We just don't get a lot of inner. We don't get a lot of inner perspective on her. So right. We don't really know what she's thinking or how she's acting. Right. Uh, but like you know, whichever whichever woman that in this movie. I guess Charlotte. It would have to be Charlotte because yes. it's her stake. Yes, Charlotte makes uh, her stake. Um, yeah, when... is interesting. Yeah, he uh, says he I says don't... kiss me. She says uh, I'm in a hurry. He says that's no excuse. She says I know, and then goes back to making her steak. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. There's some good line. There's some good. It's a, there's some good interaction. It, it, it is his his desire to make what uh, I forget what the, it's the German word like uh, Kammerspiel or whatever like for like chamber chamber plays. Yeah. Uh, in this one environment is a little weird. Yeah. Like, most of the time, like, in the bakery, fine. That works out fine. I'm cool with that. It's essentially that. It's a little bit more exp- expansive than that. Yeah. But that's actually, like, he's standing by the door on the floor, on the mat. is like, really yeah. an odd arrangement of human beings. That is, uh, that is one of the reasons that uh, the f- head of French television rejected uh, the scripts, was that he called it, uh, it, he called it uh, filmed theater. And that 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 wouldn't play on television at the time, um, which Did I, think, I get that. 
Which I get, and also probably wrong about even television at the time, but but sure. Well, I'm just saying that, like, in this situation, like, I can you actually imagine watching this movie that we watch today on TV? No. Exactly. Like, it. I, I get where they're coming from. It's like, it, it is better applied to, sh- like, to the to the medium they actually ended up in, I think. Yeah. Boy, man, the picture for Kammerspiel is, like, really funky. <laughs> on Google. Woof. It's kind of terrifying. It's all in, it's all in German, too. Nice. Of course it is. You looked up a German concept. <laughs> you silly. Well, no, I know, but I I was under the impression because of the way he was using it that is that like the chamber play is not what typically is used, but I guess yeah. it is. Yeah. Well, I'm 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 in a rabbit hole now, boy. I'm in full German Wikipedia here. All right, stop it, Pat. Stop it. Stop it. Recover. Get back. Boy, chamber um, play does not get a lot of English Wikipedia, but it the German one's quite large, but. Uh, <laughs> the English one's like two sentences. So in uh, in describing these uh, movies, um, uh, in '65, uh, Romer said in a uh, in a Kaiher's article, uh, "I'm a man, and my tales are stories told in the first person," as sort of a. Uh, a justification of the point of view of, say, Bakery Girl. Um, Which I think is... makes him a bad writer, too. (laughs) Right. Yeah, Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, there is certainly something to be said for, for writing from the perspective you are familiar with, but that does not mean that you cannot write... Uh, you should also be thinking outside yourself because uh, a sentence like that suggests that he is not thinking about the inner world of any of his female characters. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. And Bakery Girl suggests that that is true, uh, that he has not thought about the inner world of any of well, his Well, and you get characters. into this weird sort of like stupidly sort of semantic, not semantic, but like kind of, um, well, I'm trying to think of the word and I can't think of the word, argument about like, whether it's a pro- like if you know is it appropriate to write outside of your what you know yeah she you know and like but the problem is you get into this weird sort of like loop in the end which is like yeah but like look at this era of filmmaking all the people making film are men which is bullshit anyway right i mean it, it gets kind of weird right uh it's kind of it gets very cyclical until you get into this thing where like well all the movies feature the perspectives of men because men make films. Women aren't, aren't really, there's not a lot of effort to get women into the film, like to even open those doors at all. Yeah. Uh, and then you just get into this, it's, it's fucking the same kind of circle. You get in other, other, uh, sort of other industries. Right. But yeah, it's just, that is a bad, that is a bad sentence because it's like, you know, okay. There's a lot of things you can. You get into the thing. There's a lot of things you can do that are 
like okay if you don't know how to write women go find a woman who does and then have her right. write her. like you know maybe like, maybe just talk like, to like, one <laughs> yeah talk to one or like collaborate with one yeah. and like sort that shit out because we could know what she's thinking it wouldn't be hard it just shows disinterest right it just right. shows like the stories that are interesting to me are only the ones that i know how to tell right and that's uh it's self-deluding uh don't know what that noise was um <laughs> boy I like how there's always a really exciting selection of noises on every podcast recording. Um, it's self- Ryan's always ambulances. Yours is always just weird yeah. inner house noises. It's self-deluding, and it's it it shows a lack of imagination. Yeah. Um, but even a lack of imagination about what he himself is capable of doing. Right. <laughs> which is which is especially sad. For... Well, and then I think I think the interview plays that out to a certain extent. Like, yeah, the interview is very fawning, but like the way he talks very much indicates like a person who's very much beholden to the influences that led him to the point he's at right now. And we'll see how it goes forward. Like we really will, but like it has a feeling of like it's it has a very literary like literature professor turned writer sort of vibe to it. Yeah, if that makes sense. Like he broke molds, but like a lot of times the description of why the molds were broken was because that's all that they could afford to do. Not necessarily. And then like, well, it's a happy coincidence because like that matches what I want. But like, did it or is it like that's just what happened? You know what I mean? You kind of start to wonder inside of your head. Like, did you sort of retcon your life to make it so that like those were the things you actually wanted? You know what I'm saying? Like, that sort of, oh, that's what I wanted anyway, kind of uh, yeah. response to bumps in the road, right? Right. Uh, which is very much a, like, upper upper middle class, like, answer to, like, hardship, right? <laughs> oh, that turned out, where everything worked out the way I wanted it to anyway, like, kind of vibe, right? Um but like the way he describes his influences very much sounds to a certain extent like he's locked into him yeah like very much like oh i wanted to write a book and i and you became obsessed with like the influences that feed into that book to the point where you're just sort of creating an algorithm almost in your head that generates that kind of book uh which is a thing that happens right like Especially with people who almost, to a certain extent, who spend almost too much time studying how to write a book, you know what I mean, or something like that. Yeah. In this situation, make a movie. Uh, we'll see what the other films are like. I mean, we really, well, we have no idea. But I think that, like, not being able to write something you aren't, or even find somebody to help you write something you aren't, is symptomatic of that same sort of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Uh-huh. But, but I don't know. We've seen one movie. We'll find out. But, like, we saw the interview, and the interview had certain... <laughs> there were some weird bits of the interview where I was like, hmm, this is... We're going to be interested to see what the rest of the series is like. Now, uh, now to be fair, uh, the interview also took place when uh, Romare is pushing 80 
and uh, right, and I get that, and he makes a lot of mistakes, and I'm not gonna do, I'm not gonna yeah. like, like I'm not gonna like criticize him for like getting confused, like that's right. not the issue, and then but like what I mean is like, especially when you get to be of a certain age, that like you can look back at your life and be like, well, that's just what I wanted to happen, yeah, is a weird response that like. The people do all the time. I've done it. We all do it. But it's yeah. It doesn't mean that it was true at the time. It it doesn't mean it was true at the time. It doesn't mean it's true then. And it is ultimately a uh, a sidestepping of criticism, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes me nervous because I feel like that that's the sort of thing you get out of people when they're not actually truly secure in the art that they're doing kind of thing does that yeah. make sense yeah but romer definitely doesn't feel you know, no secure he doesn't in the art he's but making. at the same time I, I i don't know it's gonna be interesting to see like i think like maybe what what i mean is more that like i think maybe in the end he probably wasn't actually happy with this movie yeah but then it's become a sort of thing that people like it and so he doesn't want to like constantly go into discussions about it being like yeah i kind of fucking hated that movie right right you know what i mean like you, you know where i'm coming from like that sort of thing like oh like this thing kind of accidentally it's it's the tommy was effect basically like a different version of it yeah. but it's the like oh i made this thing and now I'm, that like i clearly had one feeling about but then everybody turned out to have a different feeling about it, and so like i'm gonna play along because like i don't want to let on that like i wasn't in on the game you know what I mean? Like I and I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think he was trying to make a serious movie and it turned out to be a joke for everybody. I think he maybe didn't like this one as much, but people do and like to talk about it. Yeah. And so now it's like, well, I've just got to pretend like I'm satisfied with the way this shit turned out. Because <laughs> you can almost hear it in his descriptions of it where he's like, oh, "And that was a happy accident that like, you know, we didn't have the budget and we couldn't do the thing we wanted to do, and so we did it this way, and then yeah, you know, it worked yeah. out or whatever. That's a that is a it's not necessarily a sidestepping of criticism as much as a sidestepping of your own disappointment, right? Right, right. I'm reminded of uh, of the movie Night Moves, uh, 1975. Uh, Arthur Penn directed, Gene Hackman stars, and uh, Hackman is invited by his wife to see My Night at Mods. And he says, I saw a Romare film once. It was kind of like watching paint dry. <laughs> I don't think this was that bad. This one certainly wasn't in, that bad. In any, in any, by any means. But we'll see. I'm, I'm really curious to see where this, this set yeah. goes. Because watching this, the interview set a, a very specific stage and set of expectations that I'm hoping that won't... I'm hoping that they won't play out. I'm hoping that they will not be what I kind of imagine they are. Right, right. Because I think that would be less interesting than what they could be. We'll find out. Yeah. Well, we look forward to moving on through this box set of six moral films by Ari Romer. Um, yeah, yeah. I I liked this one, um, The Baker Girl Month, so I think it had a lot of good going for it. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's a man's film. And hopefully the rest of yeah, these it are is, not. Yeah, it is. It's, it's too much. It's very much too much of one. Uh, yeah. And I'm hoping that it is. I was hoping until you brought up that quote. Yeah. Uh, that it was in many ways a criticism of that kind of filmmaking, but it doesn't seem like it is. 
Um, like already. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, from what I understand, Suzanne's career, which we'll watch next, is a sort of expansion on on very similar ideas from this one. Um, they obviously all, self-admittedly, Romero says, they all play around the same theme and, and structure generally. Um, but uh, uh, Suzanne's career is often described as a more refined version of the bakery girl. Um, and it was made later the same year, um, whereas the rest of the films uh, were made later in the decade. These both came out in 63, and the earliest next one is 67, if I remember correctly. Okay. Uh, so a little more time to uh, to refine his style and get into what he really wants to do with them. But Suzanne's career is next, and we look forward to that. Thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Haight does the music. Check him out at JonathanHaight.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. We'd appreciate it.